Would you go ahead and grab your Bibles one more time and turn with me to the book of Jude? I'm going to go ahead and tell you, you can disregard your sermon points for the evening. This is often the case that you think you've got the amount that you want to preach, and then as you get into the weeds of it, you realize there is simply too much to cover in 30 minutes. And so this evening, we will be looking at Jude 1, only verses 3 through 4, only verses 3 through 4, and the points will be a whole lot different than what's in your bulletin. Uh, Jude chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, hear now God's holy word, our rule of faith and life. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Your lamp, your word is a lamp to my feet. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the word. We thank you for these scriptures that you have delivered to your church, that you have given to us. Uh, Lord, we thank you that we have uh, the ability to, to read it, that we have multiple copies of it, that we have multiple translations of it, and yet it is all your word. It is breathed out by you and it is useful for us. It helps us. It enables us to be complete, equipped for every good work. Father, we thank you for the word of God. And Lord, we pray now as we come to it and as we hear it preached that you would grant us eyes to see, ears to hear, and that you would soften our hearts to be able to receive the word of God as it is preached this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And so today we are going to observe two points. Just, just two points. I'll, I'll tell you briefly uh, what happened. I saved you from an hour-long uh, sermon this evening. Uh, what was going to be my first point of three is going to be the entirety of the sermon this evening. And so we've broken it down a little bit more uh, so that we could give the rest of the text the appropriate attention it needs. And so this evening we'll observe two points in the text at hand. First, that we are to contend for the faith. That we are to contend for the faith. And secondly, and lastly, because of the continuing threat against the faith. And so we contend for the faith. Because of the continuing threat against the faith. Or we could also think of those two points this way. That the first is the church's strategy in this fight. And the second is the enemy's strategy in this fight. And so first, we see that we are commanded, instructed here in God's word in Jude verse 3 to contend for the faith. And this is really the church's strategy for the fight at hand. We read there in verse 3, Jude writes... That although he was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary, he writes, to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
And so in our first point this evening, we observe that we are to contend for the faith. Christians must be prepared and ready and willing to fight for the faith. In our first point, we'll consider how we are to do that and also why we are to do that. And so how? How are we to fight for the faith? Jude isn't talking about parking lot brawls here. Uh, He's not talking about lunchroom squabbles. This isn't a fight that you have to go to the gym and bulk up for or go to the gun range, as it were, and be prepared for. Uh, But we are commanded to fight for the faith nonetheless. And so how do we do that? How do we do that? It's not physically. It's not with arms. Well, I think simply we could ask, how did the apostles do it? How did the apostles do it? They did not make others suffer who didn't embrace the faith, but rather they suffered themselves for the faith, patiently, selfishly, courageously, boldly. This isn't a fight where we make others suffer for the faith. This is a fight where we suffer for the faith. We fight for the faith as Paul did in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, where he writes, Though we had already suffered and been shamelessly treated at Philippi, We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And so, though we may suffer and be ridiculed and be despised, we fight for the faith, boldly declaring the gospel of King Jesus, even in the face of persecution and hardship and trials. We fight for the faith by obeying Peter. When he writes to us, commanding us in 1 Peter 3.15, to always be prepared. To always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet doing it with all gentleness and respect. This passage in in Peter is where we get our word apologetics from. Uh, What the ESV translates to defend is apologia in the Greek where we get apologetics. Apologetics is not making an apology for the faith. You're not to be sorry for your faith. It is to defend the faith, or as Jude puts it, to contend for it. And so how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, the first and most important way, the first and most important way that we contend, that we fight for the faith, is with the Word. With the Word, by being well-versed in God's Word in Scripture. We defend specifically the truth of God's Word against all falsehoods and lies. And this is an integral part of the Christian's life and service. At the root of every false teaching and every cult and every false teacher is that age-old question that Satan himself asked our first parents in the garden. Did God really say? Did God really say? That question is at 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 the root of every false teaching. And how are we to know? How are we to know did God really say? Unless we are well acquainted with what it is that God has actually said. We need then to be daily reading the Word, but not just reading it, meditating upon it, studying it, memorizing it, and hearing it taught regularly by faithful ministers. Consider Christ, the best example we have for this, that when he was tempted in the wilderness by the devil, how did he respond? How did he contend? How did he fight for the faith and engage with the enemy? By citing Scripture. Now, I find this fascinating. Jesus who is God, who according to John 1 is the living word. He is the word of God incarnate. Anything he would have said would have been the word of God, would it not? He could have said anything, and by default, because he is the word, 
Anything that comes out of his mouth would have been the word. Yet Jesus didn't come up with something new on the spot when tempted, did he? He cited the Old Testament. He chose to quote the Old Testament scriptures. Why? I believe as an example to us that his word is sufficient. And that we too should know it and have it memorized. If we want any chance at fighting for the faith. Notice, the devil did not give Jesus the opportunity. Uh, Jesus didn't say, well, give me a second, Satan. Let me go find my scroll and find the passage that I'm looking for. He had it at the tip of his tongue. He had it memorized. Consider these passages. Isaiah 55, 11, where the prophet tells us that when God's word goes forth, it shall accomplish the purpose for which God has purposed it. Not maybe, not sometimes, not only if you have some really good illustrations, not only if you have great oratory ability. No, Isaiah says, every time the word of God goes forth, it will accomplish the purpose for which God has purposed it. Consider Luke chapter 8, verse 11. I really appreciate Jesus' parables where he explains the parable to us. Where he tells us, hey, this is exactly what I meant and this is one of them. At the end of this parable in Luke 8.11, Jesus tells us that the seed is the word. The seed is the word. Well, brothers and sisters, this means a couple of things that the seed is not. I grew up, I grew up in, in a church that did several, uh, every year, probably two or three different opportunities uh, were, were available for us to do mission trips, both uh, locally in our town and county, uh, broader usually with some form of disaster relief in Mississippi or Louisiana or Texas, and then usually at least once a year, one foreign mission trip, usually somewhere uh, to South America or to Canada. And on those mission trips, uh, the majority of what we did were works of service. Works of aid, works of relief, where we were either putting uh, roofs on people's houses or, or giving food to the hungry or helping clean up after some type of horrible natural disaster. And those things are all great. And those things are wonderful. And those are things, brothers and sisters, that the church of Jesus Christ should be doing. They are good things to do. But at the end of almost every single one of those mission trips, in one of the debriefs that either the youth minister or the minister or some deacon or, or some leader uh, would give to the church after the fact, there was always this phrase that would be used. That, hey, we put X amount of roofs on people's houses or we fed X amount of people. Look at all the seeds we planted. Well, brothers and sisters, God's word does not tell us that your works of service are the seeds. Your good works, your good deeds do not plant seeds. The word is the seed. The word is the seed. So absolutely, go and do those works. Help out a neighbor. Clean up your street. Go feed the hungry. Go put a roof on someone's house. Absolutely, all day long. But make sure it's accompanied with the proclamation of the gospel from his word. Luke 8, 11, the seed is the word. The seed is the word. Consider Romans 1, 16. What has the power for salvation? What has the power of salvation? Not your wittiness, not your examples, not your life. What has the power of salvation is the gospel. Consider 2 Timothy 3.16. That the word of God, that these scriptures are breathed out by God and they are useful for reproof, for rebuke, and for training up in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Consider Hebrews 4.12. That the word is the sword. And it's the word that pierces. It's the word that divides. It's the word that digs deep. The word. 
We don't just sit around and wait and prepare for someone to attack us or to question us. We don't only defend. Jude here commands us to contend. It's active to fight, to struggle for the faith. This is not just passive. It's not just defense. It's offense. We as Christians are to be proactive in the advancement of the truth of the Christian faith by actively exposing, refuting, rebuking, and correcting theological error. But we see this in places such as Ephesians 5, 2 Timothy 2, Titus 1 and Titus 2. We see Paul doing exactly this against the false teachings and teachers in Athens, in Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. And we see it here in the book of Jude. It's basically the whole purpose of why Jude wrote this letter. Paul tells Titus in Titus 1.13 to rebuke those whose lives contradict the gospel. Why? So that they may be sound in the faith. John the Apostle in 2 John verses 9 through 11 charges the church, charges the church not to even give someone the opportunity to spread false teachings. So much for freedom of religion then. Paul commanded the elders in Ephesus to be alert to the fact that men would arise among them, that there would be men who come up among them speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. We're to be active proactive in the defense and the contending and the fighting for the faith through the word of God. I think we see clearly throughout God's word that the preaching of the word of God is the primary means of contending for the faith. In 2 Timothy 1.14, we find that God has appointed pastors to, quote, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. God has instituted the preaching of the gospel as the central and primary means by which he advances his kingdom. Passages such as Romans 10, where we read, how are they to know unless someone goes and preaches it to them? Make this clear. Preaching the word is also the central means by which we are to correct error and false teaching. Paul commanded Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 2 through 4, to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Though not, not all are called or equipped, or gifted to preach and teach in the church in our pulpits. Every single member of Christ's church has been called and commanded by God to be faithful in this measure, to be faithful in the propagation of his word in their daily interactions with others. Paul commended the members, not the elders, the members of the church in Thessalonians, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Their faith had gone forth everywhere. The biblical picture is one not just where ordained ministers are proclaiming the truth of God. The biblical picture is one where ordained ministers are faithfully proclaiming the truth of God's word from the pulpit so that believers will be better equipped to faithfully carry the truth of the scripture out into their everyday lives and relationships. This is why Paul tells us in Ephesians 4 that he gave pastors to the church. Why? To equip the saints to do the work of ministry. It's not just your pastors and your elders and your missionaries and your church planners. It can't just all ride on our shoulders. Consider the book of Acts where we have example after example of the church exploding in growth. It wasn't just because of the twelve preaching the gospel. The body of Christ was doing the work of ministry, was faithfully propagating the word and the gospel... But secondly, in addition to knowing God's word and being therefore able to give a verbal defense, 
and to share the God's truth of the word, uh, we're also, we also contend for the faith and fight for the faith in our witness, in the way we live it out and act. And I want to be clear here. We absolutely reject the popular modern notion uh, of share the gospel and use words when necessary. What a goofy and unbiblical and unfounded phrase. Share the gospel and use words when necessary. Ligon Duncan said about that phrase that saying share the gospel and use words when necessary is like saying feed the hungry and use food when necessary. It is always necessary. It is always necessary. You cannot do apologetics. You cannot share the gospel without knowing God's word and sharing God's word. It is necessary. However, it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. We must also it out, lest we be hypocrites and liars. It is the word which is the seed, not your witness, but your witness is incredibly important. In the passage in 1 Peter that we read earlier, Peter gives us an ethical dimension to the command to defend the faith. He wrote that we must give a defense with gentleness and respect. So it's not just what we proclaim that matters, it matters how we proclaim it. Our lives and our conduct also serve as a defense of the truth. They are not sufficient on their own, not at all, but they work alongside our verbal, scripture-saturated conversations towards a common goal. Jesus himself taught his disciples in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Paul commanded believers to commit to speaking the truth in love in Ephesians 4.15. We must speak the truth, but the manner in which we speak that truth is a vital aspect of our defense of that truth. And this is important for pastors and parishioners alike. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.24 that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And throughout the book of Jude, holiness, the importance of holiness is stressed. We're told towards the end of Jude in verse 23 that we are to hate even the garment stained by the flesh. And we're given negative example after negative example of what happens to those who don't find personal holiness important. We contend for the faith through the proclamation of the word, but also through our witness, through the lives that we live. Those who have received the faith must contend for it, must fight for it. But that doesn't mean that we go out looking for fights. We shouldn't be inclined to controversy. We shouldn't go looking for it. Remember 2 Timothy 2.24, we're not to be quarrelsome. We need to recognize that there will be a time, there will come times where fights are necessary, where contending for the faith is necessary, where debates are necessary, and we must be prepared and willing and able to do so when the time arises. But you need to notice here that Jude did not want to initially write a letter like this. Jude did not initially want to write a letter like this. What does he tell us in verse 3? That he was eager to write to you about our common salvation. Jude wanted to write a letter about doctrine, a letter of encouragement about the common salvation that you and I share. That Jude, it seems, wanted to write a letter more like Ephesians. But he writes that he found it necessary. He found it necessary to write to us that we contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So that's how we are to contend for the faith, through, our word, through the word and our witness. But also in our first point, we see why we are to contend for the faith why we are to contend for the faith. We live in a culture 
whose chief virtues are acceptance and tolerance. A culture whose motto is you do you and I do me. You just, you just go and you do what you want and your truth might not be my truth. A culture that's fine with your beliefs as long as you keep them to yourselves. But there's a few problems with this. First, it's not remotely biblical. It's not remotely how the world actually works. And secondly, they don't really usually give Christians that common courtesy, do they? Truth is absolute. It's, it's not relative. There is no your truth and my truth. There is simply the truth. What is good is good, and what is right is right, and what is wrong is wrong, and what is bad is bad. Truth and morality do not change with the culture, and they do not change with the times. They remain the same. Nothing, it, I've gotten to a point where almost nothing irks me more on social media than when you see someone uh, share a truth share a moral absolute, share a scripture, and you get a comment inevitably on any post, especially Twitter, but also Facebook, where someone says something along the lines of, oh my goodness, it's 2023. As if to say, well, that might have been true 500 years ago, but it's not anymore. We've advanced past that. Well, that's not how the truth works. Truth is truth, and right is right, and they remain the same. And the reality is that life is far more black and white than our culture would have you believe. We have to be willing to contend for the truth, for the faith. People in the church, sadly today, like to say phrases like, well, doctrine divides. Doctrine divides. But the truth matters. And yeah, doctrine does at times divide. It often divides the sheep from the goats. Not every disagreement should be a test of orthodoxy, but some should be. Some doctrines certainly should be a test of orthodoxy. There must be a line drawn somewhere in the sand. Notice what Jude says we are to contend for. For the faith which was once in all, once for all, been delivered to the saints. These are not tertiary things that Jude has in mind, but the essential, primary, foundational things of the faith that Jude has in mind. It is the faith that Jude tells us to contend for. The faith, not, not your faith, not your individual faith, but rather he's referring to the apostles' teaching, to the body of doctrine that Christ and his apostles have handed down to the church. And Jude makes clear to us that this doctrine is unchangeable. It is unchangeable. It is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It does not change with culture. It does not change with time. We don't update it to be appetizing to the modern palate. It is the faith, and it has been delivered by God himself to men who spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, we read in 2 Peter 1.21. It's been handed to us by the prophets and the apostles, and we are to cling to it, and we are to contend for it. 1 Corinthians 11.2, Paul tells us to hold firmly to the traditions, just as I handed them down to you. Paul didn't seem to envision, and Jude didn't seem to envision, these things changing with the culture or the times. They don't. Matthew Henry writes that it is the faith once for all delivered to the saints, to which nothing can be added, from which nothing may be detracted, in which nothing more nor less should be altered. Here let us abide. Here we are safe. If we stir a step further, we are in danger of being either entangled or seduced. And so we see in the first place that we are to contend for the faith. This is, this is our strategy. This is the Christians, the church's strategy. But why did Jude feel the need to change his plans for the letter that he wanted? Honestly, I would, would have been excited to read that letter. Jude, the, brother, the half-brother of Jesus, wanting to write a letter about our common salvation. Man, I would have loved to have read that. 
So why did Jude feel the need to change his plans for that letter? Well, it's because, as we'll see in our second point, because of the continuing threat against the faith. Because of the continuing threat against the faith. And this here, in verse 4, we see is the enemy's strategy. The enemy's strategy. Jude writes in verse 4, telling us that certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude here tells us about the continuing, ongoing threat against the faith. Here in our second point, I want us to observe three things. First, that Jude here warns us of those not outside the church, but those inside the church. Second, that Jude tells us of a two-pronged attack. It's moral and it's theological. And third, Jude tells us that they've already lost. And so first, Jude warns us that these enemies are not outside the church, but rather inside the church. And so Jude is, is sounding the alarm, he's rousing the troops, and he's, he's shouting from the rooftops, the enemy is in the camp. Jude here writes of false, fake Christians of false teachers. These are wolves in sheep's clothing. These are goats parading themselves as sheep. As sheep. Jude warns us that they have crept in unnoticed. And this should unnerve us. This should concern us. Jude says they've crept in unnoticed. But we shouldn't expect false teachers and fake Christians to announce themselves. They sneak in. Just like their father, the serpent of old, slithered his way into the garden. We then must be aware of the fact that wolves creep their way into our churches. We must be on guard and ready to spot them in our midst and able and willing to rebuke them and rid ourselves of them. Jesus himself warned his disciples in Matthew 10, 16. He said, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Paul warned the church in Acts chapter 20, verse 29. He says, I know that fierce wolves will come in among you. Not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. And so Jude, in the first place here in our second point, warns us not of enemies outside the church, but enemies inside the church. And secondly, Jude tells us conveniently how to spot them. He tells us that they have a two-pronged attack plan. He gives us the enemy's strategy. They attack morally, and they attack theologically. There is a moral attack. Jude says that they are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And there is a theological attack. Jude says that they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And I think we each know it to be the case, if we think through example after example after example, that we know it to be the case that those two regularly go hand in hand, the moral and the theological it makes sense then that Jude lists the moral compromise first here and then the theological. I think the, importance, I think the order is important. I think it matters. But moral and theological compromise are often like candy and cavities. They go together and the first usually results in the latter. Theological error oftentimes, if not most of the time, if not all the time, has a moral root. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And then Jude says they deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. 
I have seen in my own life, and I'm sure that you have seen as well, brothers and sisters, that too many times supposed Christians fall into heresy and into apostasy out of a desire to make room for their sin. How many times have prominent Christian leaders and teachers and musicians especially left the faith and we only come to find out later that they were having an affair the whole time? It's happened more than once. Every one of these people raised in the church who then begin to deconstruct their faith is a new popular phrase that that we're deconstructing their faith. Every single one of these people raised in the church who begin to deconstruct their faith are almost always, almost always trying to justify their own fornication, adultery, and other sexual sins. Jude here even points to the prominence of sexual sin in leading people to deny Christ. But look at how he uses here the word sensuality. What some translations render licentiousness. It's literally, literally could be translated as unbridled lust. Paul puts it right next to sexual immorality in three of his list of sins in Romans 13, 13, in 2 Corinthians 12, 21, and in Galatians 5, 19. Jude tells us that they pervert the grace of God into sensuality, meaning that they look at God's grace as a license to sin, as an excuse to sin. These are the same kind of people who respond to any call to obedience or holiness by calling you a legalist or a Pharisee. These are the very same people who would have you believe that God stopped caring about sin when the New Testament came around. They would tell you that grace means that you can just live it up, that you can sin a little or a lot, as long as you trust in Jesus, as long as you pray to prayer, you'll be fine. Jude says they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. Remember what Paul wrote in Romans 6.1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? No, the fact of the matter is these are false Christians. These are wolves in sheep's clothing. And you can spot them by their fruits. It makes sense then that Jude refers to Jesus here as our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. These people, these false Christians, these wolves in sheep's clothing... They are ungodly, and they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, which shows us only one thing, that they do not see Jesus Christ as the only Lord and Master, but rather themselves. This is not how Christians act. This is not how Christians conduct themselves. It's become very unpopular these days uh, to say things like this. But this is how the Scriptures speak. Being a Christian doesn't mean you're sinless. No, but it does mean you sin less. Those who have died to sin do not still live in it. They don't still wallow in it. They don't stay in it. They don't make excuse for it. They fight it. They put it to death. They spend the rest of their lives doing this. Real Christians fight sin. They aim to put it to death until the day that they themselves die. Far from being a license to sin, for the real Christian, for the regenerate Christian, Titus 2, 11, 12, the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. They don't identify themselves by their sin. They put it to death. Third and finally, Jude tells us, I think the greatest news here, that they've already lost. They've already lost. He writes that these people were long ago designated for condemnation. Long ago designated for condemnation. 
we speak often as Presbyterians and Calvinists about election and predestination. But I think it's true to say that we much less often speak of this doctrine, which we would call reprobation, uh, what some would call double predestination. Well, here Jude talks about it. And I think it's actually a huge encouragement to the Christian reading this letter. And so election and reprobation, they're, they're not exactly the same. The first is active, while the second we could call passive. In election, God actively selects, actively, as our confession states in chapter 3, actively justifies, adopts, sanctifies, and keeps the elected. But in reprobation, God passively, as our confession says, passes by the reprobate. Either way, in election and in reprobation, God did in eternity past unchangeably ordain or predestine what would come to pass. And this is good news for us in this fight that Jude writes about. The point here is not for us to debate double predestination, as fun as that might be, but rather for us to trust in the sovereignty of God that is at work even in the wicked, that is at work even in the false Christian, that is at work even in the wolf in sheep's clothing. I think Jude's point here for the church is this, brother and sister, don't fret. They, without knowing it, are ultimately serving God's purposes for His glory and for our good. And because their condemnation was long ago designated, they have already lost. The fight they're fighting, they've already lost, and they just don't know it yet. The church has already won. You and I have already won. So in conclusion, Jude tells us that we are to contend for the faith by the word and by our witness because the truth matters. And because of the continuing threat against the faith, they are enemies in the camp. False Christians and wolves in sheep's clothing, they have a a two-pronged attack plan, moral and theological. But don't worry, because they've already lost. Long ago, the story was written, and they lose, and we win. This is what Jude would offer to us this evening. Praise be to God that his church has already won. Praise be to God that all of the enemy's strivings, all of his fightings, only serve God's purpose and the good of his church. Let's go to him in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you that for a reason maybe that we won't understand until we get to glory and ask our brother Jude, we thank you that he didn't write the letter that he had planned on writing. But Father, we thank you We thank you that in your sovereignty and by the leading of your Holy Spirit that Jude wrote the letter that the church needed. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that we have been given this encouragement and this challenge that we are, in fact, to contend to fight for the faith. Lord, we pray that you would give us boldness, that you would give us courage, Lord, to do what we must do in this present evil age. Father, we pray it in Christ's name for his glory and kingdom. Amen.